All right, and we are live. Welcome, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat for Wednesday, June 22nd, 2016. Someone Snapchatted me and said the dent here in the uh, backdrop drives them crazy. Well, about to drive you crazy for another 90 minutes. Uh, that's about how long we go. I'll take your questions on MMAfighting.com. Questions that turn green get priority but not exclusivity. And uh, what else? You can get at me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas, and that would be cool as well. Uh, as you can see, I'm wearing the colors today of the Cafeteros, Cafeteros, who are playing uh, Chile tonight. Yes, I wore my American jerseys last night, but fat lot of good that did because we got smoked. <laughs> yeah, that was like Chad Mendez versus Cody McKenzie. That was a beatdown. Everyone's like, you're surprised the U.S. lost? No, I'm surprised that it looked like Michael Bradley was playing for Argentina as often as he was passing to them. No diet soda, just water today. Uh, and thank you so much for joining me. I actually had a respectable night of sleep last night. Feeling a little bit better. Uh, as you all know, that's very important. All right, uh, I don't know if I have any housekeeping notes as such. So let's just go ahead and get this started. First question. Remember, Luke, today is Wednesday, June 22nd, 2016. And remember, comments in green get priority without exclusivity. You guys know me too well. Uh, okay. No praise for Wonder Boy, Luke, despite the fact that Stephen Thompson outclassed number one ranked Roy McDonald for five rounds on Saturday night. He doesn't seem to be getting much credit for it. After the fight, most fans were only attributing Wonder Boy's win to what Rory did wrong in the cage instead of what Wonder Boy did right. Some were even blaming Faraz Zahabi for giving McDonald bad instructional advice as if Zahabi has no idea what he's doing. Well, he certainly has an idea what he's doing, but no one is above reproach or making error. But, okay, be that as it may. After the match, Thompson was unfairly labeled as boring, and he was chastised for running away throughout the whole fight. Rory was long thought to be the new breed of fighter. This is in quotations. And it seems like Rory fans are just unwilling to accept the fact that he simply lost to a better fighter. I'd agree. Question, what is your take on the issue? And shouldn't Wonderboy be given more credit for beating the second best fighter in the division? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, we come across moments like this all the time in the sport, do we not? Where somebody wins in a way that is aesthetically not pleasing to fans uh, of certain gr groups or uh, groupings, I should say, or... Um, preferences or predilections, whatever you want to describe. In this particular case, let's say people who just want to see him slug it out, they left unhappy. Um, people who are Rory McDonald fans and uh, aren't happy with the way in which he lost on top of that, certainly they're not going to be happy. So there are always going to be these vocal um, groups whose interests are not being met that are going to vocalize their displeasure. The question is whether it's worth taking seriously. And in this particular case, it is clearly not. Um, you know, certainly I thought Rory McDonald was going to be able to do a little bit more than he did. He wasn't able to. Uh, he had his moments a couple of times. Um, I actually had Stephen Wonderboy Thompson on my show. He was saying he, he thought uh, um, there were times when he misjudged distance where Rory made him pay. Uh, the elbows and the clinch were nice by Rory. So there were moments where he had like a couple of um, – things that landed but he never really had a sustained offense to speak of now the question is you know what can we attribute that to bad game planning um improperly motivated for this particular fight uh is he really damaged from the war he had with lawler in a 
enduring way. Jury's still out on that, actually, a little bit. Um, because you can't quite pinpoint what happened here. I, my hunch is that it's not from the war, but we really don't know enough to say one way or the other. So that's something we're thinking about as well. But I mean, look, every time someone wins, unless it's absolutely emphatic, and even then there's going to be people who say certain things, it's all up against expectations and fan bias and uh, these worldviews that get challenged or preserved, depending on what happens. You know, Chris Wyman knocks out. Anderson Silva, and what is the response? Oh, he got lucky. Silva was just dancing. A rematch won't go this way, and this, that, and the other. And certainly, the rematch didn't go exactly that way, but he was, I mean, on a fast track to lose. Uh, I wouldn't pick Anderson Silva to beat Chris Weidman uh, if they ever fought again. I don't know if you would. Um, and yet, he was met with all kinds of dismissiveness. Uh, you, you are battling not merely the other person in the cage, but what they bring to it in terms of their fan appeal, in terms of the universe they've shaped. I said this before, I'll say it again. Every time two fighters fight, they walk into the contest, um, you know, with this idea of the universe as we understand it. And I think some people are having a hard time reconciling the results of that with the worldview which they walked into the fight with. But eventually, if these results continue to produce themselves in the way that they have been, i.e., Wonder Boy keeps winning. I suppose they'll eventually come around. Uh, but that's it. There's nothing else you can really say or do. This is this is inevitability of MMA fandom or sports fandom generally and people having a certain appetite for outcomes that look a certain way and that go a certain way. And when neither of those are met, they vocalize their displeasure, however um, off-base it may be to people wanting to give credit to the victor here. Sorry, I am very thirsty. And also, if you thought it was boring, you have a right to say so, right? If you're a fan, you're like, ah, that was boring. I mean, I may not appreciate your sense of taste and vice versa, but you have a right to say as much. Um, you don't get to fight whatever way you want and then say, oh, the fans have to love this. Fans are going to like what they're going to like. Uh, I'm not saying you have to adjust your life around it if you're a fighter, but you also can't reject it and say, well, because they didn't like what the way I, which I competed, therefore, this must not be a valid way of competing of uh, criticism is, eh, I mean, maybe it's not the best, sharpest criticism, but it's theirs. Why is Alexander Gustafson returning but not fighting someone who's even in the top 10? Boy, that question answers itself, doesn't it? Doesn't it? This guy has had incredibly tough wars against Jones and Cormier, uh, lost to badly to rumble johnson but is obviously one of those you know caliber level fighters or caliber fighters there he's at that level uh he needs a tune-up fight i have no problems with this fight whatsoever none zero gsp returning this is the one that's been on my mind for a while luke gsp said he's ready to return and wants to fight bisping do you think it will happen it seems like it might would you prefer if he stayed retired I would actually, yeah. So this was the funny part about Twitter. This, Twitter has a lot of problems. One is that it makes me a worse person than I am, although I could already be terrible. I don't deny this. Um, but more than that, I think the way in which it forces you to be thrust together with people who, yes, are often making informed, reasonable criticism, but also um, simply tearing at you for the, for the exercise of doing that 
Um, you know, this is not meaningful or helpful self-examination. So I partly have a problem with Twitter on, on that level. Uh, but the other part was like, for example, I mentioned that I wasn't all that enthusiastic about the return of George St. Pierre. And someone was like, you know, you're going to spend all that time on YouTube talking about it. Well, yeah, it's my job. I mean, it is a big story, whether I personally um, have a, you know, a great interest in seeing it. Uh, many of you do. And therefore, it is my obligation in some capacity to talk about that. Right. So so there's that, which is sort of a strange criticism. But the other one was like, you know, that I that I'm hard to please. And I'm like, <laughs> you should you should be hard to please. Right. The, I mean, there's something to be said for having a couple of people who are in your life who are easy to please. It makes things a little bit easy. But um, being hard to please uh, is like, they're trying to say that's synonymous with being irrationally difficult. And really, I'm not. My, my rule is very simple. If you retire, I, for the most part, with some exception, I would like you to stay retired. Um, and in the case of St. Pierre, I mean, look, he, he, he nothing I say is going to matter to this effect one way or the other. Look, he... I believe he's probably the best fighter we've ever seen in terms of the overall record he's built. This is a debatable statement, but he's at a minimum in the conversation for top three, if not top two, if not the top. Um, his, his career is utterly distinguished, uh, a pioneer in the sport. I mean, you can only say really good things about him for the most part. No one's perfect, of course, but he's pretty close, right? And... A guy who left his champion, controversially, but left his champion. And, you know, even the great George St. Pierre walked out on his hands and knees, but he he did do that. That's a lot more than some people do. Uh, it's a lot more than most people do uh, at this level of the game anyway. Um, but for me, it's like I don't really believe that arguing, watching fighters in their prime or slightly off-peak is being difficult. Um, that is where the sweet spot of the tennis racket is. Right, that's where you get the most out of this exercise. Now, look, it's not a mystery about why he wants to come back. He's a competitor. Um, he's had time off. If you're going to come back, taking the time off that he did, but still training, you know, still keeping an active lifestyle, but not getting just banged around in the gym, that's probably the best way to do it. Um, so, you know, credit to Saint Pierre. He always finds, you know, if you're going to follow through on a path. He always finds the right way to do it because he's a really smart, accomplished, and you know, thoughtful guy. He gets it. Um, this is not a knock on Saint Pierre. I, I, I you know, Saint Pierre has, was a joy to cover, and he was great for the sport. If we want to spend the next whatever, you know, hour and fifteen minutes talking great things about Saint Pierre, we can do that. But let's just sort of say, well, I'm not all that interested in this. I don't really think we're going to see a particularly awesome version of him. I don't. I, Look, there's a lot of people who want to see guys compete because they have strong name value and there's sort of a nostalgia about that. I think some people are led to believe that that strong name value uh, or it confuses them to believe that there's really probably no degradation or a negligible amount of degradation between the one we saw and the one that will come back. Now, obviously, I'm in no position to be able to guarantee that he can't come back and do really well. Uh, he might, you know. Maybe St. Pierre is just that kind of guy. So I can't get up here and say I hate it. Uh, I never want to watch it. It's not exactly that. It's just it doesn't do a lot for me. He left on his hands and knees because um, the game has a everyone's career, uh, you know, who's in that sort of rarefied air of, you know, um, enduring champion. They go up and then they go down. And I think we caught him on the way down. Um, he tore his other ACL on the way while he was out. Um, you know, I, I just don't think it's realistic to expect that he's going to have the same bounce, the same spring. Um, 
his capacity to take damage certainly has not gotten any worse as a consequence of his time off. I don't know that it's gotten any better. Now, he never took a ton of damage except for that Hendricks fight and maybe the Condit fight, but you notice as time went on, he took more and more. And you could say, well, Luke, when he was in those spaces, he wasn't mentally all there and he, he, he needed the break and now he feels refreshed and maybe that's the case. But to me, I find it a little bit cynical, right? You know, you, this is a guy who assiduously avoided uh, going to middleweight because he said, that's not who I am. It would take me a while to get up there. Even if I got up there, that's not where I naturally balance. Then all of a sudden, Michael Bisping wins the title, and now middleweight sounds agreeable to you. To me, that really that that reeks of someone believing that they have an advantage uh, in a particular um, kind of fight, and uh, even if it's one where they, you know, assured us for years this was a weight class they couldn't make. I think he likes the matchup. I think he likes the the the, the fighter he'd be going up against in terms of promotionally what it would mean. I think he also, as a competitor, just generally wants, you know, another title, another weight class. You know, even BJ Penn has that, right? Two different titles and two different weight classes. St. Pierre does not. This would give him an option, the, the ability to be able to say he did that. And maybe that would make him greatest of all time. Because people have asked me, if he beats Michael Bisping, is he greatest of all time? I mean, he might be that already. And if he gets that against Michael Bisping, certainly that opportunity, uh, that conversation gets even, you know, narrower in terms of if it's not him, then who? Um so I understand why he wants to do it, and he probably make a boatload of cash. I get it; like, it's not confusing. I I just don't like when you saw Fedor fight Maldonado. People were like, well, he ran into a punch, and look how he recovered, and um, you know what what heart he showed. I mean, no doubt about it. Like, of course, if we're talking about one of the greatest fighters ever, certainly one of the greatest heavyweights ever. Uh, yeah, that dude's gonna show heart because he's he's one of the best ever. But the question is not what you saw there in as much as what you used to see. Like to me, he was fighting Fabio Maldonado who, you know, can take a beating, but can't do much more uh, against anyone really good. And, you know, I, I just contrast that to the Fujita fight. He got rizzocked against uh, Kazuyuki Fujita badly, very badly. Fujita was very close to stopping him um, because he got a little bit careless uh, in over pursuing him. But then he came back and then body kicked him. And then I think he cracked him with a right and then a left hook. And they all landed super clean. And they put Fujita down. And Fujita had an incredible chin too, right? So to me, there's just a real difference in the kind of guy you saw. I mean, that he's still not a terrible fighter. Well, of course not. But relative to what he was, this does not interest me at all. At all, man. This is why guys have narrow. We all we talk about their narrow windows and why they need to get paid. Um, if you want to see them compete past that, well, you're going to get the opportunity to do so. Again, what I say does not matter in this regard. I'm simply trying to articulate a viewpoint that, like, you know, everyone talks about, well, this, this, the model of MMA is based on not so much boxing, but pro wrestling. This is especially an argument that has come to light as a consequence of the Ali Act. And it's not much you can say to dispute it. However, um, that is not how I came to the sport. I came to the sport by being like, holy crap. Uh, martial arts are incredible. Uh, I was a guy who was training in it. Uh, and you couldn't, despite what everyone else wants to tell you as a person, it is possible to draw a straight line from having a martial arts background to MMA. You don't have to go any other way to get there. They are connected in that way. And so for me, the, the sort of this like name value, this marketing value, these are questions you cannot dismiss. They are part and parcel of how the sport functions. And I'm okay with that. Um, but I just don't want to be told I'm not allowed to have the preference of saying once guys get off peak, 
I don't wish to dismiss them. We, we, we should celebrate the career of Fyodor Emelianenko. We should celebrate the career of George St. Pierre. And if St. Pierre only comes back for one more, maybe it's not the end of the world. Of course not. But this is a guy who has talked about memory loss, um, you know, missing pieces of the day. This is not some negligible, negligible amount of dismissive, oh, that's a little bit of brain trauma. Mm, sounds like a little bit more than, you know, something dismissive to me. It sounds like a, a, a worrisome amount. Um, to what extent he's had any neurological examinations that we know of that could reveal something like this, I don't even know. Um, I, I, I'm just saying I like it when guys are in their peak and, of course, a little bit slightly off peak because even as they're veterans, they have still ability to maintain. But once that level goes down uh, and when they take massive amounts of time off while the sport moves on, it just doesn't interest me very much. So so that's it. Am, am I saying he's going to go in there and get washed by Michael Bisping? No, I'd have to think about it. And this is a sport where I've said before, you know, everyone's like, oh, Brock Lesnar is going to get killed by Mark Hunt. Yeah, Mark Hunt deserves to be the favorite. I, I expect Mark Hunt will win. But if Mark Hunt goes in there and gets taken down and then gets Kimura'd or pounded out from Mount, not one of you should be surprised because that's just the way the sport goes. If Michael Bisping goes in there and gets taken down by St. Pierre and St. Pierre goes in there and locks up Kimura, in some ways that's a little surprising, but it wouldn't be crazy surprising. Uh, I, can't, I can't rule out that possibility. But what I can say is there's just an expiration date on all of this. And once you get close to the edge or past it, um, you know, to me the water no longer becomes potable. But mileage on this one will vary. I'm sure everyone's going to be like, downvote. Luke, you just don't get it. Uh, he's a legend. He'll come back. He'll be great. Sure. If that's your belief, I'm not here to take it away from you. It, you, are, you are certainly entitled to it. But I just want you to entertain the idea, at least in your mind, that there are people out there like me. And I don't think I'm alone. I think Brian stands like me, as a matter of fact, in saying this is a sport about capturing that narrow, really defined, excellent window. And once we get out of that, um, the questions about fighter safety, the value of what we're watching, about the quality of what we're watching, about the purpose of what we're watching, these begin to grow larger. For me, I reached a threshold where they're so large, I don't want to ignore them anymore. You may have a different one, but at least recognize that we're not all on the same page here. True or false? Uh, Wonder Boy gets once excuse me gets the one seventy strap in twenty sixteen. Will he get a fight fast enough for that? I'll say true. If Wonderboy and GSP fight, GSP wins. Nah, I don't know. Hard to say what GSP is going to look like. My sense is probably not. I mean, do yourself a favor if you're a Fight Pass customer and go back and watch the GSP versus Hendricks fight and tell me what you see. GSP versus Anderson is a bigger fight than GSP versus Bisping. At this point, I don't think so. GSP will experience octagon rust when he returns. A little bit. A little bit. Bisping successfully defends his title. Uh, I'll say false. They'll probably kill me for saying that. But Dominic Cruz retires before he loses. I will say false. Lesnar gets popped from one of the many USADA tests taken. False. At least one major talent will be, will be removed from UFC 200 for whatever reason. As a gesture of goodwill, I'll say false. Lesnar versus Fedor happens in 2016. Uh, I guess. <laughs> I don't really care. And I know so many of you are going to be like, why wouldn't you care about that? It did. It, yeah. 
it just doesn't it doesn't mean the same thing anymore to you it might to me it does not the legacy of dan henderson i got this microphone on my stupid face Luke, none would dispute that Dan Henderson is an MMA legend, but has had one of the most storied careers, excuse me, and has had one of the most storied careers in the sport. In his 19 years of fighting, Hendo has beaten the likes of Fedor, Rodrigo Nogueira, Gilbert Ivel, Shogun uh, twice, Babalu twice, Vitor Belfort, Vanderlei Silva, Feijal, Hector Lombard, Husmar Pajares, Henzo Gracie, Rich Franklin, Michael Bisping, Carlos Newton, Ninja Hua, and uh, Murillo Bustamante. I mean, I mean, what a what a resume. He was a UFC Tournament 17 champion, Rings King of Kings tournament winner, and the prior 2005 Shockwave Tournament winner, two-division Pride champion, as well as a Strikeforce Light Heavyweight champion. Question, having fought at three weight classes, claiming multiple championships in the top promotions and competing at a high level for nearly 20 years, what is Hendo's legacy? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, it's probably a few things. Uh, one, it is um, he represented that that first real wave of American wrestlers who matriculated. Um, he is probably one of the more successful among them, if not the most successful, depending how you want to define it. Um, he is the new Iron Man. You know, Randy Couture fought to what forty seven. I want to say he's over here at forty five. Maybe he'll make it to forty six. We'll see. Um, so he has that going for him as well. And he had his ups and his downs. I mean, this is a guy that lost to Jake Shields. This is a guy who's had uh, a number of um, tough losses. But uh, one of his other legacies was that not merely was he like sort of tough in this general abstract sense, but he had an incredible capacity to rebound over the course of his career. I've written him off many times and been like, how does he keep doing it? He just does. He just does. He's really, really incredible like that. So it's this longevity generally. But more than that, it's these ups and downs. He's very much like the stock market, right? Um, but he finds ways to to just he was he just was really clever about finding ways to stay relevant. Now, he also was a product of TRT. I don't think that's deniable. Um, you know, not anymore though. He's sort of found enduring success seemingly without it. So that's part of it too. But I don't think the TRT thing is really the the most crucial aspect of his identity. I think for me, it's this pioneer who. Um, creatively found ways to take big fights who was a bit of a not a loner exactly was a bit of a guy who carved out his own path um you know left he left ufc after ufc 100 right i mean this is sort of a really interesting time he was on a high coming off the reality show beating michael bisping the way he was and um and went another direction that's pretty pretty amazing um captured a belt and there captured a belt previously never quite got it in the ufc but of course for different reasons um yeah, it is. It is. I'd have to. This is a question I have to think about for a while because I'm sure I'm missing something critical to understanding what he is. But for me, that first, you know, this was this is just a guy who evidenced what it mean what it meant to like how much MMA was benefited when these Olympic caliber wrestlers began to move to MMA, um, and then a guy who really sort of functioned well within it. We know a lot of guys from that level necessarily did not or did not in the same way that Dan Henderson did. He might be again one of the more successful of all of them. But um, but nevertheless, you know, just kept finding ways to really stay at the top of the game, even if it meant unconventional paths, either through opposition, through weight class, or through um, organization. You know, always remember, we always talk about like fighters, what's, what's one way to uh, examine success? And it's consistency. Um, and Dan Henderson has been mostly consistent, but has at times been very inconsistent. And yet he's still here. 
because he strikes when the iron is hot, um, and he finds ways to make up lost ground quickly. Like if he loses a big fight, he just finds ways to get another big fight and to help him boost himself right back to where he needed to be or to even pass that point. And a lot of guys struggle with that. If they have a loss, it's one of these really devastating losses that sets them back for a year or two or more. Um, and again, Dan Henderson has had down periods for sure, but um, he's usually found ways to, to, to rebound in the most spectacular of, of manners. And here we are again, you know, he was on a tr this, 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 what was his losing streak? It was like two of his last six or, or two of his last eight he had won. Let me pull up his record here real quick, like 45 years old. Yeah, so I mean, after that war with uh, Shogun, he lost to Machida, Evans, and Belfort back to back to back. So 2013 was a terrible year for him. Rebounded in 2014, fell again in 2015, and then rebounded again here in 2016. Um, and then, you know, had that great run in in uh strike force but you know look at this you know beats michael bisping what happens he loses to jake shields and then he goes and beats hanato sabral and then he beats Feijiao, and then he beats fedor and then he goes back to the ufc and then he you know really adds to that so he's had these legendary fights as well it's not it's not a matter of did he beat merlo bustamante or did he beat you know uh, let's say shogun i mean he had a war with shogun and all of his fights were kind of pretty exciting for the most part not all of them but you get an idea a lot of them um yeah Again, finishes pride by KOing Vanderlei Silva, captures the middleweight title there, which is their welterweight title, and then loses to Rampage. So he loses the light heavyweight championship, essentially, and then loses to Anderson Silva, and then rebounds and loses, then rebounds and loses. He's, but he's still sort of always found this way to get these key critical wins throughout the course of his career. He's really kind of a remarkable fighter in that way. Not many guys can suffer that many setbacks and still have that many belts collected and that many scalps collected and that many accomplishments across organizations you know all, all the venue changes all the organizational change all the camp changes he's been through he's he's been a product of that up and down um experience but he always comes away with his nose clean doesn't he quite remarkable uh john Jones Camp versus Big John. What do you make of Jones Camp expressing concerns over the fact that John McCarthy will be the referee for the Jones DC bout? Someone says he's getting back at DC for his Herb Dean concerns. Uh, I am going to text. You know what? Let's do this on the air, shall we? I'll make this quick. Let's text Malky just to be sure. And then I will let you know what he says if he gets back to me in time, which he should. He's usually pretty responsive. Let's see. What are the concerns regarding John McCarthy as a... All right. Let's see what he says. Deal? There you go. I will, I will give that to you. All right. Baller versus Thompson. Even Thompson's ability to stuff the takedown attempts of McDonald and Hendricks before him and control the stand-up game at range almost completely nullified all aspects of McDonald's game. Assuming Lawler gets through Woodley, how do you favor who do you favor in a title fight? Uh, 
Robbie or Wonder Boy? Um, at this point, I favor Wonder Boy. Uh, Lawler has big power, and again, you saw a couple moments where McDonald would slip up and take a couple of. Um, um, he's not as susceptible to the body, I think, because a lot of guys want to headhunt on him. Not that his body's not open, but they they choose to headhunt, and he is real good about you know mastering a range of just leaning out or cutting at an angle or slipping. But there are times where if you can catch him committing to a punch and then uh, get inside of it and then follow up like McDonald did, um, his head's wide open for a couple of shots. If 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 Lawler does that, uh, certainly Wonder Boy could be in trouble. But I find everyone who's having difficulty dealing with McDonald or uh, uh, Wonder Boy in that way, I don't see how Lawler would necessarily be any different. Now, as I always say on this chat, I, re I reserve the right to um, change my opinion over time, but uh, or as we get closer to, to that eventual fight. First, he has to get past Tyron Woodley, which I suspect he will do. But nevertheless, there you go. Um, I just believe that the range of Wonder Boy is, you know, as you noted, <clears throat> which is only aided by his takedown defense, is a nightmare to deal with. True, false. Wonder Boy's karate is far more effective than Machida's karate back in his prime. It's very different. Um. No, I'll say false. I mean, Machida won a title on the back of it. Wonder Boy hasn't done that yet. It's possible that Rory's war with Robbie Lawler caused fatal damage to his nose. Yeah, I actually asked Wonder Boy about that too. And his answer was when you see someone who gets a nose broken like that, where it's broken in a fight, then broken in training, and then broken in the next fight, he goes, they have to take like a year, year and a half off for that thing to really heal properly. Uh, and even then again, it can be broken. But like if you just keep going, it'll never, it'll never heal. Uh, Donald Cerrone has more power in his punches at welterweight than he had at light, lightweight. Probably a little bit. Bisping's size. We're talking about Cote. Cote just got cracked with shots he didn't see coming. I also think Cote's chin is probably not what it used to be. I also think, or I, I, I don't think, I wonder if at welterweight it has suffered a decline um, in what he can take because of weight cutting. That can actually have an effect on your ability to absorb damage as well as your recovery. Bisping's size, work rate, and good takedown defense would probably cause GSP to tire out, ultimately lose the decision. That is certainly a reasonable, a certainly a reasonable assumption. I'll say probably cause. I'll say true, but I don't. You know, the TriStar Gym could be declining since Rory, Ricci, Carmon, Breeze, Garcia, Duffy, and McDessie all lost their recent fights. I mean, it's a down moment for them. I don't know that it has an overall decline. It's ironic that Jones wants a referee change after he criticized DC for not wanting Herb Dean for a ref. Ironic? I don't know if ironic is the word. If the Fedor-Maldonado fight was in the U.S., the fight would have been stopped three times over the first round. Oh, yeah, that would fight would have been stopped. Sean O'Connell versus Steve Bosse is a better fight of the year candidate than Lawler versus Condit. If you are a complete donk, yes. If you are a rational person, no. It's surprising when you realize that Cain Velasquez hasn't won a fight in three years. That is shocking. I mean, I guess it's not when you really think about it, but just on the surface level, it sounds incredible. JoJo's knockout victory over Valerie Letourneau was one of the strangest ending sequences to a fight. Yeah, you know, everyone was like, Jaron Valal is a terrible referee, and I certainly would agree that a lot of his more recent performances have been real bad, and this one was very bad. The funny part is that when he was coming up on the circuit, um, and some of his earlier fights that were of, you know, on a regional scene or Canadian promotion, um, he was actually pretty good. 
Uh, at least he showed flashes of being pretty good. You know, all those guys are not that great at that level, but he showed some signs of being good. But man, he has he has had some trouble recently. Uh, Hillary Clinton will make America great again. Well, America's already great, so. UFCCL, now that it is a done deal, seemingly, how do you think it will pan out? Do you think the promotion will be run differently business-wise and fight event-wise? There are obviously going to be some differences, uh, either aesthetically or um, geographically, or we'll see what else happens. And some of these are just completely unpredictable. But just one thing to keep in mind, you know, people are saying, or I think are, are expressing some concerns that this will be some sort of radical overhaul. And I, I would be very skeptical of that claim, not merely because it just sort of sounds on the face of it um, implausible or at least unlikely, but more than that, you know, when, when Zufa purchased the UFC from SEG, um, they purchased a product that needed overhaul. Like everyone recognized it needed overhaul. It was being sold for $2 million. It was in deep trouble. It was being kicked off of, you know, pay-per-view. It had a ton of regulatory problems, of commercial problems, financial problems. I mean, it was, an, it was a mess. It needed someone to fix it. The UFC does not need fixing. Now, it needs certain interests preserved uh, from its vantage point, be that stamping out the Ali Act, be that um, in their position, you know, fighting against the, 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 uh, the fighter lawsuit, you know, whatever you want to uh, impending not, uh, research about what brain trauma from combat sports might reveal. These are all structural challenges, but a lot of them are um, long-term ones, um, and a lot of them have nothing to do necessarily with how the businesses run in a way where if they can defeat them, they don't have to change anything, right? In other words, they're buying a business at this level right now because it is successful. And I think what they envision is that if we can keep what we have and keep it going and push it into new markets, it can be even bigger. It's not a function of this is a business that is flailing uh, and is in desperate need of resuscitation. Um, the waters are smooth. I don't think they want to do a whole lot to change that. Um, they may be forced to from a federal legislation standpoint. They may be forced to from a court finding. They may be forced to for any number of foreseeable reasons or not reasons that we can't foresee. But I don't, I really don't buy the idea that they're buying this to overhaul it. I think they're buying it to because they like what they see and they just want more of it. Now, that creates its own different set of challenges, but I don't think that that would necessarily disrupt what is, you know, you guys love MMA, right? You love the UFC. There's no arguing about that. Uh, they don't want to disrupt that consumer experience. They want to expand it. So, again, easier said than done, but I think that's what they're trying to do. Fantasy matchups, Wonder Boy versus Lawler. At this point, I like Wonder Boy. GSP Bisping. I guess I'll go Bisping. Uh, Wideman versus Rockhold 2. At this point, I don't even know. I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'll say Wideman, but I really don't know. Rory versus Condit 2. Ooh. Maybe Condit. Cowboy versus Tumanov. It's another tough one. Um... I'll say Cowboy. Pettis versus Mendez. Chad Mendez. Uh, maybe Mendez. Romero versus Musasi. Another very tough one. Very tough call. I'll lean Romero, but leaning is the appropriate word here. Uh, MMA fans and JoJo. Luke, after beating down Valerie Letourneau on Saturday night, Joanne Calderwood went to Instagram 
and posted that she was broke and didn't get a bonus. Not only did she post that she was broke, she wore a hat that said broke as hell. The next day, Dana says she got a new contract and a bonus. Did Zufa pay her because of the backlash they got on social media over this situation? Are MMA fans, in a way, responsible for Calderwood getting rewarded the way that she did? I certainly believe so. Um, and also the way in which she went about it. Like, she was like, you know, I'm going to get back to it. I'm going to save. I'm going to... She wasn't, you know, she was lamenting the fact that she had no money. She wasn't necessarily assigning blame in a direct way. She was just sort of, you know, generally stating, I have no money. Now, you can connect the dots to sort of figure out why. But uh, in this particular case, I don't, you know, she had such a great performance against a really tough competitor. And, you know, folks want to see that keep going. So the method in which she did it, did, but did she leverage the fans against the promotion? I mean, to an extent, you know, was that the ultimate reason why she got bonused? Uh, I, I just certainly don't think it hurt. Do you know what's going on with Rumble? I'm afraid I do not. But Akimoto, I think, has more than that. Was asking what's the difference between a mole and a source. Someone says a mole is a spy. His goal is to do damages. That's correct. Uh, hey, Luke, with Nick Diaz's suspension soon coming to a close, I wonder what fights are potentially available for him. Like you've stated before, you love to see Nick versus Robbie Lawler again, but Lawler's occupied with a Woodley style fight, and if he beats Woodley, likely a showdown with Wonderboy. Agreed. GSP seems to be returning, but uh, is campaigning to fight with Bisping. Carlos Condit is also pseudo-retirement. Carlos Condit told me he would return for a Nick Diaz rematch. Told me that explicitly last week. So my question is, do you think that there is a big fight out there to lure Nick Diaz back to the octagon in the relatively near future? Uh, we'll see. I think if he goes up and potentially takes a middleweight fight, there's something that can be done about that. Um, again, I think a Carlos Condit fight, depending on where you can put that on a big card, that might be good for him. Now, Nick Diaz is another guy who I'm sort of wondering at this point. Like, I kind of want to see him back to see what he's got. He's been sitting out because he's been forced to sit out um, because of this whole marijuana issue. So I still want to see what he has. But it's another one of these guys where if his heart's not in it, you know, just bringing him back all the time for him to take a weird fight that he may or may not win or, you know, consistently loses. You know, I love Nick Diaz. I have nothing but respect for him as a fighter and as a guy and, um, you know, been widely misunderstood and didn't get paid. So I can understand if he wants to get paid, but like he's not one of these guys who I think needs to, needs to keep some consistency um, about himself to the extent that he can. Because if he gets to this point where he's taking years off and then coming back and then years off and coming back, again, present circumstances notwithstanding, that gets a little bit iffy for me. Fedor. With his recent performance in mind, if Fedor signs with the UFC, how do you see him doing? Well, it depends entirely who they match him up with. He is certainly capable of winning fights inside the octagon. Um, he is long past the level that we saw previously. This is another one I just do not have a ton of interest in. I don't hate it. Uh, although this one I'm a little bit more bothered by because he took a beating in that Maldonado fight. Like he looked bad afterwards um, and got rocked as well. You know, it wasn't merely superficial damage. So this one's a little bit. Uh, this is a question that only you guys can answer because my brain is so far removed from an interest in watching Fedor fight at this point, especially at the elite level that, you know, I don't know what to say. You know, it's, um, 
the last thing I want to be like, look, everybody wants to be sober in their judgment about them. Now, some are going to be a little more optimistic about it. Some are going to be a little more down. I'm going to do my best to be right in the middle while having at least some kind of acknowledgement that there's no way he, he is what he used to be. Question is, how far has he fallen? That's a, a, certainly up for debate. My hunch is that he's fallen pretty far. Um, I think the Maldonado fight kind of evidences that. I don't like if you're in the UFC, and I know we are living in an age when CM Punk is getting ready to fight a guy who's got one pro fight, which is <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that um, anymore. Anyway, but to me, it again, I'm going to draw that straight line between elite MMA and enthusiasm in elite MMA on those terms and fandom. I, there's a straight line there. And whether or not anyone else wants to draw that kind of line or whether or not anyone else came to the sport on that line, that is a way to do it. It's the way I do it. Um, and I just do not have a ton of interest in watching Fedora compete against guys who potentially could do really, really bad damage to him. That there is commercial interest in him, however, undeniable. Undeniable. People love him. There's no doubt about it. And they love him for good reason, because he was an incredible ambassador for the sport and did incredible things while he competed in it. But for me, P.S., will you be attending the three live shows leading up to 200 like you did with the UFC 197? Yes. Yes, I will be. Karma. Is it karma coming around to bite Jeremy Botter's ass? Why does karma want to bite Jeremy Botter's ass? After Jeremy Botter got BJ Penn rap rape accusations where he inserted his own opinion, thoughts, and feelings as fact. Sounds to me like an incomplete sentence. Uh, Donk's existentialism. This actually has six wrecks. Luke, is being a donk an innate personality trait or simply an attitude? It is both. Is there any hope for the donks among us? A donk by the name of Key of D Minor asked this question a few weeks back, and sadly, it was too far back in the queue to get answered. I fear that as a result, he may be stuck in a state of donkception until this question is finally answered. Please help him, Luke. Yours in donkage, a fellow donk donkerson. Uh, yeah, it is. It is a couple of things. It is. It is. It is both a personality trait, but that personality trait is is usually one that's been like. It's an attitude that eventually calcifies into an identity. There are ways out of donkery if you catch it early. If you like to say, I'm going to stop watching, you know, um, stupid things and I'm going to read books or, you know, I hate sushi. And then you go and like try to expend your palate and you eat sushi or, you know, you do whatever you can to save pennies to take a bus trip to a different country if that's possible to you. Like some kind of way to expand your worldview that challenges the, your conceptions of things, uh, which is an, which is an ever present task. None of us are beyond it, but, um, but once you get sort of set in your ways, it just becomes sort of who you are. And then donkery is synonymous with your identity. And that's when you're boned. Um, <laughs> I can't believe I just answered that. Can a fighter like Anthony Pettis get cut? Yeah, he can not eminently, but yes, you know, but remember Dan Hardy lost what, like four five in a row. What did he lose? How many did he lose to that Anthony Johnson fight, which was like no good at all? Um, what did he lose in a row? 
Four in a row. Oh, am I, am my brain not working? Oh, the Johnson one was the third. That's right. And he lost to St. Pierre. It should have been finished. Then he got finished by Condit, finished by, or decision by Johnson, and then finished by Lytle in the third round. Then he beat Dwayne Ludwig, and then he beat Amir Sadala. But, yeah, I mean, you can lose four in a row like Hardy didn't stay on. And I, I remember even after the Anthony Johnson fight, because that was back when, like, if you lost three, boy, you really were gone. They've been much more flexible about that now. And and real, and, and for other reasons, inconsistent. Like, you could lose one or two, and they'll cut you now, you know. Um, but you know, there's different, like they're going to, they're going to get rid of you to the extent that they feel like there's no real meaningful use for you. And you're not incredibly valuable to, uh, another promotion. So Pettis is going to be here a while. Uh, even if he loses, they're going to find a way to probably keep him on his feet unless he just has an absolute meltdown, which I certainly hope is not the case, but yes, um, losing four in a row has happened before and guys come back. Someone says he's today's Miguel Torres. Nope. Miguel Torres got um, shell-shocked. It's not exactly clear that's what's happened to Pettis. I've had some theories about that, but they're still just that. They're just theorizations. It's not – we don't really know. We don't really know. No word yet from Malky. He may not respond. What do you think about Dana White's recent comments about Ariel? And the UFC 199 incident saying, for instance, quote, it was dirty. He knows it was dirty. And he threw a big pity party for himself, makes crying noises, uh, crying on camera and S. Dude, your kids are going to see that for Christ's sakes, end quote. Uh, what do I think about it? I do not think much. However, I have saved a link, which I am going to tweet now. This is the link. I am talking about on the live chat presently. What is journalism? Here you go. Boop. And I'll put the chat wrappers hashtag in it. All right. Uh, I just tweeted out the American Press Institute's essentially opus, this entire breakdown of what is journalism, what are the purpose of journalism, what are the elements of journalism, what does a journalist do, bias and objectivity, the, the lost meaning of objectivity, understanding bias, tools to manage bias, verification and accuracy, uh, the protest method of verification, hierarchy of accuracy, journalism is a discipline of verification, what makes a good story, good stories are important and interesting, good stories use detail, um, structures, black box system of organizing a story. This is the only thing that matters when it comes to journalism. Um, you're asking me what I think about it. I don't think much. I get this question all the time. Not really this one in particular, like, what'd you make of Dana White's comments? But um, I get this question all the time. It's like person with absolutely zero understanding or expertise in something who in fact has interests that go against the best practices of that industry said something about said industry. What do you think about that? I don't think anything about it and nor should you. It's not an opinion to take seriously. It's just not a matter of expertise he could possibly have. Um, now, of course, I'm sure he would say the feeling is mutual about understanding a fight promotion, and there probably is some merit to that, right? Uh, I have not been on the inside looking at, um, um, looking out in, in ways that he has or uh, Scott Coker has or anyone else who has worked in fight sports, um, at least not to that same extent anyway. Um, so there's probably some truth to that. However, um, I spend my life um, trying to learn about it, not trying to fight it. 
right? There are, are pretty key differences. And over time, I have amassed at least a little bit of knowledge and understanding about um, ways in which the business does and does not work. Again, incomplete. I will forever be in a position where I am looking to gain an understanding about this. So I think you guys are in a similar position, right? We're all kind of in this together. Uh, we have to be recognizing of our own limitations. But, um, you know, but when he says things like, um, like what was it? Like they, that real journalists show that respect. I mean, this is this is so fundamentally inaccurate that it, it barely deserves any commentary. I mean, literally the best journalism does exactly the opposite. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, the only responsibility you have is to the facts and to um, the audience, uh, or in this case, the citizenry, or however you want to like group it. Um, you do not, under any circumstance, have any responsibility um, to the organization by which you are covering or the entity to which you are covering, other than fairness and accuracy. And by fairness, I mean getting the story correct. Um, you know, and this idea like, well, they should reach out, real journalists reach out, this is so fundamentally not true. There's absolutely not a shred of truth to that whatsoever. Now, it's true if you're gonna run a, uh, a piece that's critical of them or investigative in some kind of way, then it does become critical to reach out to them. But, you know, any organization in any sport will do this. The NBA will do this, the NFL will do this, Bellator will do this, UFC will do this. If you have a scoop and you reach out, these sports organizations generally, they will either try to find a way to delay what you're doing so they can keep a hold of the scoop. Um, they'll just not answer you so they can delay your time to publication. They do all kinds of things. Again, not just UFC, all these sports organizations. They do this. If you have a scoop and it's probably verified and it's in the public interest, um, you just run with it. People are like, well, people could lose jobs. Then people lose jobs. That's just how it goes. Uh, it's got... That is that is that is not the idea that there is an impact to journalism and that that impact should therefore silence it, uh, even for things as what you what I believe to be as trivial as a um, fight scoop or whatever the case may be. This is never in any circumstance whatsoever a reason to not do it. And anyone who tells you otherwise is profoundly, profoundly wrong. And I just tweeted out something from the American Press Institute that will verify and back up all the claims I am making here. I can source what I'm talking about. I can source what I'm talking about by best practices in the industry, by people who have thought deeply about them and have lived them and understand them better than anybody else, including anyone in fight sports, including even me. So I can source what I'm talking about. It's the end of the argument. It's not, it's not a position when someone says they have to show that respect. They have to do their due diligence. That's it. That, that's that's all they have to do, especially when if you reach out to the NFL about some kind of in, information, they're just going to delay you on it, right? Adam Schefter routinely does not do this because Adam Schefter knows if he does, it's not going to make it to publication in any kind of timely way, and the public wants to see this. They, look, there are lots of good people inside the UFC, and there are particularly lots of good people inside the UFC PR department, and uh, it is a pleasure to work with them and see them, and I enjoy working uh, alongside them in some kind of mutually beneficial capacity whenever I see them. They're great. Um, UFC is, in general, a great organization. Look at how much good they have done. Um, but they have certainly people inside their leadership that simply d have an adversarial under, um, posture towards journalism. And in cases like this, where they reveal their positions on it, they want uh, journalism to be done on their terms according to their interests, which is not journalism at all. Right, and that's the end of the argument. There's really nothing else to say about it. And if there have, if you have any more questions, uh, here I'll post a link even in this, even in the comments. 
Here we are. From the American Press Institute. What is journalism? So no one is any confused any longer. You know, and then the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, it's routine that whenever they get upset at something, they try to personalize it, right? These critiques are always personalized. Oh, this is Randy Couture doing X. This is Tito Ortiz doing X. This is Ariel Hawani doing X or, or whatever the target may be of their ire. In some cases, it, you know, their actions can't be divorced. In some cases, the UFC is 100% right. But it, you should just note this common thread of personalization of the critiques rather than um, the substance of the issue. And, and I think that should tell you a lot as well. Someone says, I don't know about that, but Luke is certainly biased. Let me say one more comment on this, and then we're going to move along. Someone asked me all the time, oh, Luke, you're biased. Right. Right. I am biased. Um, that's an inevitability of existence. If any journalist ever tells you that they are unbiased, I got two things to tell you. They are either, well, I should say three things. <laughs> maybe two things. They are either confused, which is possible. They could just maybe think that way, but they're confused, or they are lying frauds. There's no other, there's no other possibility here. But in either case, what they are definitely not is unbiased. Bias is, is an inevitability. It is a function of existence. The key to bias is not to pretend I can assume some kind of role where I can uh, eliminate its existence. No. The key is to find some kind of balance to it, to bring in other editors to review your work, to find sources that challenge your worldview, to let readers know what your worldview is so they can make informed decisions about what you're doing. To try to find the facts as best you can is of course your task. But even that one is fraught with peril if you believe that you can be unbiased. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. And I've referenced this before, I'm gonna say it one more time. There's a famous paper out there which has essentially defined the, the, the industry on this. It's by Professor Jay Rosen over at NYU. It's called The View From Nowhere. When people say that they're unbiased, what they are essentially saying is, one, I refuse to recognize my own bias, even though it's quite readily there. Are you white? Are you rich? Are you black? Are you poor? Are you male? Are you female? Did you go to college? Did you not go to college? Did you grow up in the South? Did you grow up in Canada? All of these things affect the way in which you view the world among innumerable other matters, not merely racial and gender identity, but more than that, background socioeconomic background, education, uh, peer influence, all of these things shape the world in which you see them. And to say, well, I'm unbiased is to say, I don't know what my gender is. I don't know what my background is. I don't know if I went to college. No, you do. You do. And all those things affect you. And that's okay that they affect you. But the only way to really control that and in some kind of reasonable way is to recognize how much it profoundly impacts you how you view the world. And the second part is when you hit, when you get media institutions that say things like, well, I'm, I'm unbiased. I'm going to stay out of this. That means you can have some people saying on the one hand, um, 
you know, pick anything. It's raining because of typical weather patterns or some sort of, you know, identifiable meteorological event. And then you have other people saying, nope, the flying spaghetti monster is urinating through a sieve. And you are going to sit here and tell me, well, I'm unbiased. I got to take both these sides seriously. Because if you're telling me, well, no, you don't take the other one seriously. Well, right. Well, then you are admitting to some kind of bias. You often see this. Well, I don't know. I'm going to do the he said, she said thing. I don't know. Well, then you are simply uh, committing to some kind of false equivalence of the world where you're giving equal time to things with a ton of evidence and things with none, simply because there is a coordinated effort behind one, even if it's deeply irrational and has nothing to do with anything. Uh, I'm not doing that. I have biases. I will always have biases. I will always acknowledge my biases. I try to cobble together evidence the best I can and the fairest way I can. I will ultimately fail in this regard. You will identify failures. And that's how this process works. You will hold me accountable. My editors will hold me accountable. I will try to hold myself accountable. I will reach out to other people who can influence my worldview in a way that I can find the fairest, most reasonable way to deliver stories and opinions to you. But I will never, ever get up here and lie to you and say things like, I don't have bias. Everybody has bias. Everybody. The key to it is recognizing it and controlling it so that the reader can get the most accurate information possible. But that's there is no such place where we're bias-free. Period. End of story. That is how this world works. That is how this industry works. I, I really cannot encourage you more to go read The View from Nowhere. Because if that's the kind of journalism you want, then you don't want journalism at all. You want to be confused and grope in the dark for a light switch that really isn't there. And I don't want to put readers in that kind of position. Who's the man with the biggest arms? Me or Chael Sonnen? I might have bigger arms, but I bet you Chael's probably stronger. You know what I'm going to do? It's just, it, it drives me crazy. And people are like, you're biased. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So are you. Here we go. Let's, since this discussion's going on, let's see. This was brought up. During the live chat, here's the view from nowhere. Read it. Hashtag chat rappers. Here we go. And I'm going to post it under the comment accusing me of being biased as if this is some sort of mortal sin. Luke, you breathe. Right. Right, I do. Okay, I've tweeted it, and I put it in the comments section. So now you have no excuse not to read it. Rogan confirming he would no longer be commentating on the last fight companion. On the last fight companion, upon being questioned by Brendan Schaub, confirmed under his breath that he wasn't going to be doing this anymore. How will the UFC be affected, if at all, and what will Rogan's legacy be? Rogan is um, 
Rogan's pretty essential, uh, I think, to the UFC's growth uh, in the period in which he was a, com a component of it. Um, so here's my view about what Rogan has done. First of all, I think he's an excellent commentator. Like, to be able to do what he does and the way in which he does it, which is relatively note-free, I think, is, uh, is very, very hard. Uh, very hard. I've done some commentary before, and I'm terrible at it. It's it's insanely difficult. Um, and when someone makes it look as easy as Rogan makes it look, you should just know that's because they're very talented, right? You watch Messi's free kick last night. You're like, <laughs> if you didn't know better, you'd be like, yeah, he just kicked into the top corner of the post. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, but he makes it look effortless, you know. But here's what I think. Here's where I stand on the issue. I think the UFC will be just fine at this point. You know, when they first began to introduce the Good and Hardy teams or the Anik Florian teams, this was the first time we had seen in years, really. We'd seen guys fill in here or there, maybe. Um, but this was the first time, you know, Matt Vasgurgian filled in once. I think UFC 55, if I'm not mistaken. But we had, this is the first time we had, like, you know, if you watch the NFL on Sundays, they're just different crews, right? Phil Sims is, and I forget who Phil Sims is paired with, but you've got, you know, uh, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, right? That's one crew. I'm not here to debate which crew is better. I'm just, you know, you got, um, um, God, who is it? Uh, Gruden and Tarico. although I think Tarico is leaving ESPN. But um, in any event, you got these different crews. People are accustomed in, in American football to seeing all these different groups do it, right? In the UFC for years, it was just really one. And then they put in Hardy versus Gooden and uh, Anik with Stan and uh, Anik with Florian and so on and so forth and different permutations, Goldberg and... Um, Stan, and you get the idea. Um, I think that normalized the idea that you could hear a different commentary team without much controversy. At first, it felt a little weird, and now it doesn't feel weird. So, one, they've sort of been like prepping the soil for this kind of transition. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say, though, is um, I personally feel like Brian Stan is the best commentator in the sport. Uh, now, there are other great ones, but for me, he's the best. I feel like he just knows a lot about the sport. Um, he gets technical details that I don't think anyone gets, not Anik, or sorry, not uh, Florian, not uh, Hardy, not Rogan. Uh, again, those guys are very good, don't get me wrong, but I feel like Stan is a level above them. But Stan is much more your traditional kind of sports broadcaster. That's kind of the, the mold he fits. And as MMA has expanded, and particularly as UFC has expanded to network television, um, I, think he's, I think he's a better fit for that role long term. You know, head-to-head, -head, who is going to relate to you the most interesting information and who's going to relate to you the most information about technical details? I would argue to you that's Brian Stan. The difference is this, for me, is that Joe Rogan was a part of the UFC when they needed someone like Joe Rogan the most. Because the, the genius of what Joe Rogan was was that, number one, he never really got credit for how good he is on camera. Like, the camera doesn't phase him. In fact, maybe it even makes him better. I don't know him in his personal life. I can't say. But he is excellent on camera, okay? That's true if it's Fear Factor. That's true if it's news radio. And you can say whatever you want about his acting skills one way or the other. I'm, I'm just saying, on a camera, he doesn't shrivel. And I've seen people shrivel, trust me. Um, so he's really good on camera. He's really good as a broadcaster. Uh, brought what the fan base de you know, demanded, that hardcore fan knowledge. That was the second component. But more than that, he was a guy who didn't have any fights, at least in MMA, but he had the Taekwondo background, obviously he had, you know, a decade or more worth worth of jujitsu under his belt, you know, both with his and without the gi, and was just a part of the community, but spoke to you as something of an everyman, and, and more than that, not just an everyman, 
also he had these ability, this ability to capture the moment in ways that I'm not sure Brian Stan could, for example. So that's a knock on Stan. So I'll give you a clear case of this. When Holly Holm beat Ronda Rousey, and I know Rogan got into trouble for all the things like, you know, Ronda Rousey's once ever kind of thing. But forget all that. Just talk about the, the the call he made in that moment. Boy, I don't know that anyone could have done it better than him in MMA. I really don't. I mean, it was perfect. It was poignant. Like, there were so many smart moments just in terms of his broadcasting techniques, his formatics, uh, his understanding of the context of the moment, his ability to say a few things but say a lot in that space. Like, he's gifted, man. He's a really gifted broadcaster, and he spoke about jujitsu in ways that just made sense to someone who didn't watch it. Stan can do those things too, although not quite as well. What Stan is really going to do is elevate the level of discussion, like the level of specificity he can get into. And he's an adept broadcaster as well, of course. Um, it's much more of that traditional kind of role that he's fulfilling. So in, in, in essence, they're not even the same kind of broadcaster. I mean, they are color commentators, but one was a central, I mean, critical for that moment in time when the sport needed someone who could do that, who could be a commentator, but more like a friend in your ear who was guiding you. That's kind of the role Rogan played. Now that sport has matured and more people know what the sport's about and they can kind of recognize the value of Mount and Kimuras and things like that and you know, and front kicks or whatever the case may be, now having someone who takes that general literacy about the sport and raises it to another level, like a Brian Stan, um, I think it's just the natural evolution of things. So to me, it's not even a competing thing. Uh, it's just who is the most appropriate for the time and place in which they are commentating. Um, I'm not saying Rogan has outlived his usefulness. If he wanted to keep going, he'd be just fine. It's just that uh, as his interest wanes um, and you begin to see the kind of differences that someone like Brian Stan brings to the table, I feel like the transition is very, very natural. So for me, it's like, how is the UFC going to get around? I think they'll be okay. Not saying people won't miss Joe, of course. I just think over time, people will, they'll just learn to adapt. You know, everyone's replaceable. Um, and as someone who is a central figure like Joe Rogan has been, and there's just no getting around that, and I think was the perfect guy for the time in which the sport matured uh, as a broadcaster, um, getting someone like Stan, I think is, you know, to me, it's it's less of how will the UFC adapt. It's like bringing in Stan is a reflection of the changes the UFC's already made, the growth it's already experienced. Uh, do you believe the UFC won't sign Rory back? I think they will. I think they will. Um, we'll see. Questions about uh, Dana talking about Ariel. Pass on the rest of that. Los Anjos versus Alvarez. Who do you got and how? Ways to victory for both of them. You know, I'm leaning Dos Anjos, of course. I'll tell you this, though. My producer on my radio show, she has been on an insane hot streak. A very unscientific hot streak, but a hot streak. She picked Bisping, put money on him. She picked, and I saw all the receipts. She picked uh, Stipe, put money on him. And a bunch of other upsets recently. She got all of them right. Um, she picked Misha over Holly. And I mean, I can go on. Like, that's like a shocking list if you saw it. And she thinks that Alvarez is going to win. That she, that, you know, the whole thing's going to shock. Now, why? I don't know. You can hit her up on Twitter if you want. But um, Eileen Dos Anjos, you know, I just feel like he's the complete guy at that weight class. But 
Uh, my main event predictions have been suffering recently, and hers have not. So I don't know. <laughs> I know it's a really bad answer to give, but I I can only speak to what I, sounds correct to me. I think Dos Anjos can just regulate a range. I think he's got a great takedown defense. I think he's got more weapons on the feet. Um, certainly Alvarez has a lot of weapons himself, but it uh, just feels like Dos Anjos has more. But I guess we'll see. It would be interesting to see if Alvarez can wrestle him to the ground. That would be kind of interesting. Because the one knock I have on Dos Anjos, everyone's like, oh, he's got a black belt in jiu-jitsu. It's true, but I've talked about this before. He only submitted Kamal Shalarus. That was after he head kicked him. And then, um, what's his face? Terry Edom. But it took him a while to submit Terry Edom uh, from on top. So... I don't know that I see him as a super-duper submission threat to someone like Eddie Alvarez. The NBA season, did you watch the final, and what did you make of it? Man, I hate Draymond Green. What a clown he is. He gets on my nerves so much. And there are people who defend him, like, oh, he's tough. He reminds me of the Barkley of old. The guy is uh, – I can understand if you were his teammate, why he would be valuable to you. But someone who watches the game, he's hitting people in the balls. And you see there's video evidence that he, he tried to kick Kyrie Irving as the uh, final bell sounded on Game 7, I can't stand Draymond Green. He drives me nuts. And more than that, like, the, the series overall was not great. It was like blowouts, and Game 7 was pretty incredible. I got to see some of it. I was at a wedding. Um, but do I see Durant coming home? Durant is not coming to D.C. Sad as it is for me to admit that. that hashtag KD to D.C. is dead. Um, but... With the with LeBron, like for me, the interesting part was I wanted to see. I'm a big. I don't present this as a way that you need to follow. I'm just telling you how, what my natural inclination is. I like to see greatness fulfilled, and you might say, "Well, the Warriors were 73 and nine. This was the season to have their greatness fulfilled." And that that that, that I I don't have any response to that. That's just another way to slice it. But for me, there was a measure of greatness in LeBron that we never quite fully saw maximized. I don't know if he'll win another NBA title. I certainly wouldn't rule it out, but I just don't know how likely it is. We'll see what happens with Kevin Love. And obviously, I'm assuming Kyrie Irving is going to stick around. Um, but um, seeing him win as the first team to be down 3-1 to one in the finals and do it, and then with that block, the chase down block on uh, Iguodala, you know, and then that just dagger three that Irving hit. Like there was a certain measure of greatness that I think LeBron was. We all knew how he had in him, and it wasn't. We had, it just wasn't reflected in those. It was reflected a little bit in the two wins in Miami. Anyway, I'm going on some things that I know some of you guys don't care about, but um, you know, it's interesting that John Jones and LeBron James both have like this. Will you be a witness messianic complex thing going on? And I know that rubs some people the wrong way, but. If someone is that insanely talented, you it's kind of a waste not to see it fully maximized. So maybe the Warriors will come back and maximize their greatness. Maybe they'll have a 74-game win season. You know, I don't know. But um, for me, I always felt like LeBron never quite did something that was a true reflection of his greatness. And everyone's like, well, the Warriors were injured. Well, okay. Do you remember when, when the Cavs played the Warriors the year before and there was no Kyrie and no Kevin Love and – and Luke Rockhold was telling me that Della Vadova was the MVP of the Cavaliers. Like, yeah, you know, LeBron was out there with Della Vadova last year. And this year he had some support. You know, it was, it was their turn to to uh, have a little bit of wind at their back. So there you go. 
LeBron going to the Wizards. If LeBron went to the Wizards, I don't know what I would do with myself, but he's not going to. So. Uh, UFC Unfiltered, a balder, fatter, fighter, and the kid. All right. This is not my words. This is theirs. Trying to leverage the massive success of the fighter and the kid, the UFC is attempting the same formula with their unfiltered show. After listening to the first episode, it sounded more like the marketing scrums of old with Dana answering a series of softballs. And while I wanted to hate it, Sarah and Norton are oddly an affable duo. Does this show stand a chance of being anything more than UFC marketing? Well, that's what it is. It's UFC marketing. You know, Jim Norton paints himself as a bit of an iconoclast, but he, he is a company whore when he needs to be. I like Jim, but, you know, uh, can it actually live up to its name? Well, no, it's not going to be unfiltered. Anything that comes with a UFC name on it is going to be in, in, in line with um, UFC interests. Just know that. That doesn't make it necessarily a bad podcast. It might be a great podcast, but unfiltered, no. But, you know, I was on a show that was called MMA Uncensored. Like, not that, not that everyone, not that anyone ever changed my opinion, but, like, there's just no way it's fully uncensored. It's just a name, you know. Uh, it's 2.15. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Thoughts on Woodley's road to the title. Some say he hasn't exactly fought his way there. Well, they say that now because he's been off for so long. If you were the matchmaker, who would you give the middleweight title shot to? Jacare. That's another thing. Like, George St. Pierre is going to come out of retirement in a division he's never fought in and get a title shot right away <laughs> like i'm with you that i don't want the alley act getting in the way of matchmaking but don't tempt me by doing something like that have you or a colleague ever been burned by a source oh yeah oh yeah a few times and it is no fun because you look bad in the process More questions about Ariel. I'm done answering those for the day. Uh, let's see. Again, there's a couple of them. I'm just going to skip here because I've been over it a thousand times. Does the nature of the UFC's stance, excuse me, does the nature of the UFC's stature in MMA mean journalism ethics are forced to be regularly compromised? Um, well, I can't speak for the industry as a whole. I can only speak for myself, but I would argue that there's definitely some things that could have been done better. I think some of the wide, the sweeping claims about MMA journalism are really bad and false. Um, but that has everyone been up to a kind of professional standard that um, we should be? Um, I, that's a debatable question. When the crowd boos somewhat patient fighters like Rory and Wonderboy, does that bother you at all? It used to, and now I just don't care. But it definitely, definitely there was a time when I was like, oof. Especially when you're there live and you hear it, you just feel bad for those guys. But, you know, people pay money. for These UFC tickets aren't cheap. Now, I don't know how much they were for this one. But, you know, historically, they haven't been cheap. Uh, people want to get their money's worth, man. And then they got, you know, they're seven beers deep in them. They, they began to get a little bit unhinged. With the imminent return of GSP and the talk of him and Bisping fighting, does this solidly, does this solidify a Hendo retirement? It's too early to say. It's too early to say. I can barely, and I mean barely, I can live with Hendo getting a title shot because at least he's a middleweight. 
the GSP getting one is just like, I mean, you got to be kidding me. Uh, regarding Kavanaugh's interview about not cutting weight, your thoughts on one breakfast primal reptilian Connor? I have not read that. What do you think the biggest problem with media, both MMA specific and mainstream, is today? Um, Jesus, the biggest one. Um, just how content has been tied to monetization. You know, for years there was a firewall between them, and now there is not. And in some ways, you know, you look at what we do in journalism, you know, and you know, when you put out something, you're trying to reach a maximum audience, right? And then you see these things and every media company is doing them, right? And, and to an extent, I get it. Um, the Atlantic or, Buzz, you know, BuzzFeed's really good at this, for example, about doing, you know, na uh, native, sort of the sponsored content where it looks like content, but it's not, it, it's not, it's actually an advertisement. Um, and what does that tell you? Like, what does it tell you about the nature of what we're doing? It's almost like, we're not selling you a platform where you can advertise anymore. What we're doing is we're developing skills in terms of reaching and maximizing audience that we can then sell to an advertiser because we can then give them that same kind of reach and maximization. So like, what are we building here? Are we building, is that journalism or are we building skills of um, platform manipulation um, to reach people, uh, and everyone does it. Like it's not, it's not, you know, and everything's labeled and they're, they're trying to build best practices or ethics around it. And I'm not against the practice necessarily in that way. I just have questions like, you know, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean for the skills that we are building that what we're selling is not merely, I'm going to put up this content and then I'll leave some free space on top of the content by which you can, um, put up an advertisement. It is, I'm going to build this um, suite of skills that I will then use the exact same suite of skills to build things that look like my things, but are your things. And then we'll sell that, that, that well, I'm selling the skill trade. That is, it's a little bit different, right? And that's a little bit troubling. Um, we'll see. True, false. Now that the Cavs had won, Steve Bay will lose the title in Cleveland. I'm done betting against Ipe. If America's best athletes played soccer, how competitive would they be in the international stage? People want to dismiss this as a hot take, and it can be a hot take in the wrong hands. I certainly believe that um, some of our best athletes who would be designed for soccer do not play soccer. They play other things. Like, I've often believed that if Allen Iverson had played soccer, I mean, we're talking about, I don't think there's anyone on the U.S. men's national team that is even close to the level of athlete that he is. And he's about the same size and the same kind of athleticism required for that sort of thing. Like, the idea that, he, you know, if, 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 if someone of that gifted who fits that athletic profile had been put into soccer and with the same kind of work ethic, this is before the practice, we're talking about practice days. What could he have become? However, it's also true that, like, you know, Messi is an insane athlete in some kind of definable context. But, like, like we don't need them to be these, like, insane athletes in the way that, for example, if you're a European, you may not appreciate this. You have to be a monster, monster athlete to compete in the NFL. They measure the limits and strength of your athleticism to a shocking extent. That is a very athleticism-based sport, hugely so. Where if you're just not up to par, 
you won't you'll be exposed pretty quickly even if you have a lot of technical skills um especially for certain positions you know uh wide out cornerbacks that kind of thing secondary level players um so i definitely feel like the best athletes who fit the profile aren't there but i also feel like it's just a skill issue too like that game last night oh my god michael bradley was so terrible and then you have Jossi Zardes, who there was no connectivity between the midfield and the forwards. Even if Jossi Zardes got the ball, he, he had nowhere to go. He had nowhere to pass it to. Uh, and Wondolowski, I mean, just send him back to the MLS, please. Like, never play him again. So tired of him. He's not good. He was so overmatched. You know, it's just <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And Tim Howard's too old, so they bring in Guzan. And Guzan tries, man. He'll keep you out of trouble for the most part, but... He's not an elite keeper by any stretch of the imagination. We just don't have the skills, man. We just don't. And who's supposed to be? If Guzan's your lead guy and Howard's backup, and you have no, what Nick Romando, and then and then the guy here at DC United as like your fourth, like we're boned, man. We're totally boned. It's just a, it's a skills issue. If the sale turns out false and sources were incorrect, does that damage credibility of various reporters? Yes, yes, it would. Okay, I guess now that Bisping won a title, who is the best fighter to never fight for a title? Exclude the Fedor types. Well, I guess you could say maybe Cyborg. I mean, she has the Invicta title, but not a real UFC title. Um, it's a dwindling group. It's a dwindling group. Why do fight fans hate draws so much? I'd prefer to see more draws than razor-tight unfair decisions. Because when you have just one guy versus one guy in in a what is a fairly simple contest in its uh, in its face, I mean it's it's I suppose it's not, but there is part of that. Um, people, there's a, there's an expected finality there. It's not eleven versus eleven where there you know a massive group of referees and these rules and regulations and you can't use your hands and. You know, the part about MMA being what it is, that it's so minimalist, right? One guy, one guy, one ref, that's it. No one else is there. Uh, find out amount of time to do it, yes, but you got a ton of weapons at your disposal. Make it happen, you know. And and in the real world, remember, soccer doesn't exist in the real world. It's a game we invented. Fighting, not MMA fighting, but fighting exists, fist fights exist in the real world. We've just put rules to it and sharpened it. And most fist fights in the real world end like that. You know, usually, usually it's the first one to land a shot wins in the real world. And sometimes it's mostly a, a, a sucker punch. But I think there's a little bit of accustomed behavior to seeing fights go quickly in the real world. And, and even in MMA, you know, it's a, a sport with whose reputation is built on shocking upsets and blistering knockouts and that kind of thing. What do you think about potential match between Nelson and Cowboy? Love it. Because Cowboy's good on the ground. Love it. Do you think the new ownership of the UFC will adjust pay-per-view and fight pass prices? They might raise them. <laughs> I don't think they'll put them down. Uh, let me be clear. I'm not saying they're going to raise them, but I also am definitely not saying they're going to lower them. Would the sale of the UFC legally allow Reebok to back out of the deal? I do not believe so. Why are people clamoring for Maldonado to get a 10-8, but nobody called for Silva to get one with the KO versus Bisping? Uh, well, one, he got at the end of the round, 
uh, although I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that. Uh, but two, the one versus Fedor was a sustained beating in the first round. That he got out of it is a testimony to his toughness. But he got molly whopped for a full, nearly a full round. At least three minutes plus and some change. It was it was a beatdown. Do you agree with Brendan Schaub saying Kimbo should be on the Mount Rushmore for MMA? Um, depends on what your Mount Rushmore wants to be. Should refs be forced to spar around with Anthony Johnson every time they make a bad stoppage? No. You know what's funny though? I don't know if you guys are following this. Um, there's this debate going on in uh, the NBA about whether the league is too transparent of in terms of their referee evaluation. Um, I think they put out the last. They put out the grades for the last two minutes. Of games, I'm not sure how many games it is. I have to go back and, and, and evaluate this. But anywhere, the last two minutes of certain games, the ref, the referee grades will be put out for these. And even some of the coaches are against this. By the way, uh, not everyone's in favor of this. But there's an argument that they're simply tr too transparent. That this is not actually a helpful evaluation. Now that may be the case, but that is a. I mean, we're talking about a situation in MMA where you don't get any kind of evaluation of official officials in any kind of public way it's all it's all completely not transparent now i don't know what the right answer is for the nba and i'm not exactly sure what the right answer is for mma but i know it's more than what we have right now with all the craziness we've seen this year with dc beating john bones jones at 200 top at all it would be big who would you like to see gsp fight when he returns to the ufc nobody All right, let's go back to the questions. Rory and his nose. Vice Fightland. Do you know what happened to the Fightland YouTube channel? I do not. They used to make some amazing MMA videos, but their last upload is from six months ago. Is Jack Slack leaving related to this? That's a question for Jack. I, I don't know what the situation is is there. Um, I don't know. Who do you think is the next Bellator champion to leave the organization? Previous champions, Bellator has lost Eddie Alvarez. Well, Vitaly Minikov hasn't been cut. He's just been stripped. Will Brooks, Hector Lombard, Ben Askren. Um, so let's see. Michael Chandler's probably going to win the lightweight title. Maybe Dantas if he goes somewhere else. Uh, Minikov might, in fact, actually leave. Um, Jesus, who was their middleweight champ? Oh, Carvalho. I don't know what's going to happen with him. Uh, who was the <laughs> oh, uh, Liam McGeary is the Beltor light heavyweight. I don't think he'd leave right away, so probably Dantas or Minikov, maybe. Oh, and someone that mentioned Cole Conrad had left too. That's true. In the past, you've referred to certain guys as being a donk. If you were talking about a female, would you refer to her as a donkette? Nope. Donk is gender neutral. Oh my God, there's like a 2,000-page question about money on Joanne Calderwood. I shall skip it because I don't have time. Luke, how thrilled are you that the classic UFC face the pain is being used again in the opening sequence, and should they bring in Stem to play it live at 2000? 
200. First of all, STEM broke up as far as I know. Brings me back to slamming cold ones and making bad decisions in my 20s. Yeah. I will really... Okay. Someone says, what, what, what's the new UFC ownership going to do? If they don't change that song, I will lose all hope for humanity. Just drown me in a river of piss if that's going <laughs> to if that's going to happen or not going to happen, I should say. I mean, that should be the first order of business. Please, for the love of God, end my misery. End the daily stabbing in my ears. Or not daily, I, sh I should say, but whenever they play that. Can we please retire that nonsense? People are like, you guys me pumped up. Yeah, there's traffic. Go play in it. All right. <laughs> well, that was a really angry uh, way to end the live chat. Um, Luke Thomas show is next. It's going to be at uh, 4 p.m. on Sirius XM uh, 93. Um, follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Give the video a thumbs up. Appreciate you guys watching today. I'm on Snapchat, the Luke Thomas 79. Let's go, Columbia. Huh? I mean, somebody in this tournament is going to do well. Uh, we'll see what they do against Chile. Chile looked really good against Mexico. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching. Until next time, stay frosty.